Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on February 3rd, 2022. With us to provide their latest views are Matt Bush, our U.S. economist and a managing director in our macroeconomic and investment research group, Adam Block, a portfolio manager and one of the leaders of our total return team, and Karthik Narayanan, managing director and head of Guggenheim's structured credit team. We will be looking at several issues today. First, on the macro front, the main focus has been the Fed's announcement at the conclusion of last week's FOMC meeting, Chairman Powell's comments in the post-meeting press conference, and what it all might mean for the future course of monetary policy. This will likely include some combination of QE tapering, rate hikes, and balance sheet reduction. Matt Bush will give us his take on what we could see from here and the outlook for economic growth. Second, the markets have been discounting this inflection point in Fed policy for some time now, but now that it's here, We've seen it play out with volatility in the stock and bond market and across the yield curve. Adam Block, who with his team actively manages fixed income portfolios, dropped by to discuss what he's thinking in this economic and market environment. And finally, different fixed income sectors have different dynamics at this point in the market cycle. And here to walk us through a deeper dive into structured credit which includes asset-backed securities, mortgages, and collateralized loan obligations, is Karthik Narayanan. To begin with the macro update is Matt Bush, our U.S. economist. Matt, take it away. Thanks, Jay. The main event last week was the meeting of the FOMC. The only material change of the post-meeting statement was the acknowledgement that, quote, it will soon be appropriate to raise the target range for the federal funds rate which in our view is essentially teeing up a rate hike in March. Powell's press conference is more eventful, where he repeatedly declined to provide any concrete forward guidance on the speed of rate hikes or balance sheet rundown. But he did emphasize several times that the economy is much stronger and inflation is higher than when rate hikes began in the last cycle, which will bear on the pace of policy adjustments going forward. This somewhat hawkish statement was echoed by Powell saying, quote, there's quite a bit of room to raise interest rates without threatening the labor market, and that monetary policy will be becoming significantly less accommodative. Powell justified this stance by pointing to the data, referring to a very strong labor market that has made remarkable progress and a 3.9% unemployment rate that he called the least tight way to look at the labor market, pointing to other indicators of a strong labor market, such as record job openings, a high percentage of people quitting their job, and very strong wage growth. Powell also referenced an inflation situation that has worsened since December, with Powell saying he's marked up his 2022 core PCE forecast by a few tenths. Powell was also asked about financial market developments, where he brushed off concerns and stated the Fed's communications channel with the market is working. In all, this was a fairly hawkish meeting that points at the Fed eager to begin policy normalization. However, we think that the initial reaction by the market and by some commentators is overdone, with some now calling for as many as seven rate hikes this year. We continue to think the Fed will hike four times this year, starting in March, along with announcing balance sheet runoff in July. Last week's economic data helped support the view that the Fed isn't going to need to start hiking at every single meeting. 
The closely watched employment cost index showed a still elevated pace of wage growth in the fourth quarter at 1.0%, but this was a slightly softer pace in the third quarter's 1.3%, and that should help bring down fears about a wage price spiral developing. Consumer inflation expectations showed a similar theme, high but not getting worse, with the University of Michigan's long-term inflation expectations measure holding at 3.1% in the final January reading. We also saw further weakness in the consumer confidence and consumer sentiment surveys, where high inflation is weighing on real income expectations. The subdued outlook for income growth should help cool consumer spending and in turn take some pressure off inflation, which we expect will cool down in the second half of this year. This consumer spending slowdown will be exacerbated by the Omicron wave, with Q1 real GDP tracking now below 2%. That follows a 6.9% annualized gain in the fourth quarter that was reported last week, though this large number was flattered by a big contribution from inventory rebuilding. Looking ahead, we expect real GDP growth will pick up after this winter soft patch, growing around 3.3% for 2022 as a whole. Overseas, there were a few major economic data releases, but away from the data, in China it was reported that authorities are considering dismantling Evergrande by selling off its assets. This process would help avoid a disorderly collapse at a time when the Chinese economy is struggling with a slowing property sector and COVID outbreaks, a priority ahead of the Communist Party leadership transition later this year. And in Europe, the main focus was on the possible Russian invasion of Ukraine, with the US and Europe weighing what sanctions would be imposed in the event of an invasion. One immediate impact of invasion would be higher energy prices especially in Europe where concerns over Russian gas supplies would increase, complicating an already difficult inflation picture for central banks. That's all I have. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Matt Bush. Next, we caught up with portfolio manager Adam Block to discuss recent market developments. Let's listen. Welcome, Adam, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me, Jay. I'd like to start with your assessment of market behavior both leading up to and following the Fed meeting last week, which was fairly consequential. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of the market activity uh, leading up to the Fed, I think, in, in a lot of ways, bailed the Fed out from having to be uh, to be the story of, of January. Uh, you know, you obviously had the, the whole fiasco with high growth, um, you know, tech stocks and, and otherwise. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways that gave the Fed a, a pretty decent starting place to, uh, you know, potentially upset the market. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I think market participants were looking for the Fed to get serious about inflation and and commit to doing something about it and and kind of putting some parameters around, um, you know, how, how they were going to tackle the issue. Uh, you know, they were very deliberate late last year about tapering uh, the, the balance sheet purchases. And, and I think, frankly, they probably wanted to be more deliberate about raising rates and shrinking the balance sheet. But ultimately, as the inflation data came in over the, the fourth quarter of, of last year, uh, that really forced their hand, and they had to address both uh, both the rising rates and shrinking the balance sheet much quicker than than maybe they would have preferred to. Um, that spooked the market for a bit, but you know, as I mentioned, I think fortunately for the Fed, the equity market at least had already shaken out a lot of the weaker hands, um, you know, that had fueled the the run up uh, late last year. Uh, and so, you know, the the Fed's shock, if that's what you want to call it, wasn't so pronounced in terms of uh, market impact. Um, yeah. I think the big question now is is on the terminal rate coming out of that meeting. 
the market's expecting the Fed to get to six or seven rate hikes over the next two years to get to a terminal rate for Fed funds in one and three quarters to 2% area. Um, but the Fed thinks they'll be able to get to at least two and a half percent. We tend to agree that the market's expectation of terminal rates is probably a little more accurate and that ultimately will be lower than where we ended the last tightening cycle, which was two and a half percent. But there's clearly a disconnect that uh, that'll need to be rectified. And I think that'll be a big driver of market activity over the next few months. So, Adam, what did you see in you know some of the uh, real basic parts of of the market in terms of say shape of the yield curve, you know at different points along the curve? Uh, did you see a lot of again leading up to and then following and a change in spreads, you know risk appetite for the market as a whole? Uh, again, what kinds of things were you seeing in the marketplace playing out? Yeah, I mean the the over the past I don't know couple months, you know quarter and a half to two quarters, you know major theme in in yields has been the flattening of the yield curve, um, and I think that really caught a, a lot of people off guard and by surprise um, the degree to which front end rates in particular have risen and and you know frankly the degree to which long end rates um, you know haven't moved a whole lot, um, and so that was kind of the the setup leading into into the Fed's meeting and then. Um, you know, we certainly had had you know again the the equity market volatility to um, you know to to add into the mix. Uh, but what was interesting was you know really none of of the, either the, the risk free rate volatility or equity market volatility spilled over into into credit um, you know to to much of an extent. So it was um, credit markets were were pretty resilient, and, and I guess in a lot of ways that was probably pretty comforting. So do you believe that the market uh, got what it wanted? Because it does seem that some of the volatility has settled down. Yeah, it it definitely settled down. And, you know, I think, listen, we made a a bottom in the S&P the day after the Fed meeting. So I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the market, um, I don't know if you can say happy, but wasn't too upset with what the Fed had to say. And and if nothing else, getting over the unknown, uh, you know, m- markets hate uncertainty. Uh, and so getting over that unknown um, was was really a, a major factor uh, for broader risk markets. Um, but, you know, again, as I said, kind of credit markets, uh, you know, we, we look at credit market performance oftentimes on a beta adjusted basis. Uh, and, you know, whether it was high yield, bank loans, um, you know, really outperformed uh Kind of what what a ten percent sell off in in the S and P five hundred would have implied um, for for you know what should have happened to credit spreads. So uh, again, pretty pretty resilient uh, performance from credit. Well, that's interesting. Now, as a portfolio manager, when you're in a period of volatility and uncertainty, what kinds of things are you thinking about uh, as you're managing your portfolio? So you know, the good fortune of being able to to focus on relative value and, and technicals across a variety of markets, and and look for areas of mispriced risk, frankly, um, on both sides. So, uh, you know, for example, I mentioned the the bank loan market in particular held up incredibly well during the the equity ball of um, of January, and so that became a really interesting source of liquidity uh, when we were looking for cash for portfolio specific needs or or to generate some dry powder to take advantage of opportunities in in more beaten up markets like high yield and preferred. So, um, you know, thinking about how can we uh, kind of not, uh, in times like this, not drastically change the risk profile of any of our strategies, uh, but but pick up additional yield or or cheaper opportunities uh, while really rotating the portfolio around. And so having those 
kind of you know beta adjusted performance figures and 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 you know a, a pretty clear finger on the pulse of relative value across uh, across asset classes you know again within fixed income primarily clearly uh, we're going to be heading into a period where you know tapering is going to end uh, rate hikes are probably going to start with the next meeting uh, and there'll be several more behind that and uh, you know there's probably balance sheet reduction in the future as well so given this set of circumstances you know where do you think opportunity exists in the fixed income market uh, given your broad spectrum of uh, opportunities yeah cr credit still looks really good here jay uh you know and i, I alluded to it um you know a, a few minutes ago that the kind of the resilience of credit um you know certainly helped all of our uh you know temperaments during the month of march when when equity markets were having trouble but you know, it, it reinforces the the need and and desire for yield across um, across investors, and so we've seen uh, you know flows come into credit, flows come into more traditional fixed income, um, and so credit risk uh, you know looks looks pretty attractive here, and and frankly looks like a pretty good place to be positioned. Um, you know, as you think about the kind of broader risks that that enter in, into a into a portfolio. Um, you know, we, we think we have a, a pretty good runway here of, of low defaults, uh, you know, obviously still the economy is growing, you know, at a, at a red hot toward pace. And, um, you know, you combine that extreme growth in the reflationary environment we're experiencing with uh, an extended maturity wall for corporates. You know, anybody who, who uh, hasn't refinanced their corporate loans at this point over the past couple of years of, of low rates is uh, you know, is a CFO that should be fired in, in our view. So you have an extended maturity wall, which means you're not going to have to be too worried about defaults for the next several years. Um, you know, we have record high debt service coverage ratios. So, you know, really, really earnings growth, uh, you know, has, has helped to, to boost debt service coverage ratios, making it easier for companies to, to pay the ongoing debt service they need to. So we're, we're not worried about broader defaults in the next few years. Um, you know, th there will certainly be some defaults, but you know, as long as kind of our our bottom up um, fundamental credit work can help us avoid the losers, having broader credit risk on in, in the portfolio is a great way to add to returns. Uh, and what about know, rates, what about fixed rate versus floating rate assets? Yeah, absolutely. Rates are I was going to say rates are kind of the major concern, right? We're not terribly worried about credit. And, you know, one way to to really mitigate that risk is through allocations to floating rate securities uh, in lieu of fixed rate securities. Um, you know, from thinking back to the last tightening cycle from 2017 to 2019, um, as the Fed was rise, raising rates, floaters performed extremely well, uh, both from a total return perspective, since they obviously don't have much, if any, rate sensitivity, uh, but also from a pure credit spread perspective. Um, spreads tightened more for floaters than they did for, for similarly rated, similarly risked uh, fixed rate bonds. And that was really driven by investor flows into floating rate assets, whether that's bank loans, um, CLOs, other other floating rate structured. Uh, you know, demand really picked up, uh, driving those spreads tighter. And, and you know, we think that same setup is is happening now, and and so that's really driving kind of you know really marginal dollars spent in the portfolio on floating rate securities. So, Adam, any other thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, I think you know, we've seen enormous amount of uh, volatility, at least relative to what we've been used to over the past couple of years, uh, over the past month or so. And, and frankly, as, as frustrating as that volatility can be uh, on a day in and day out basis, it's ultimately what creates opportunities for 
for strategies like ours and, and investors like ourselves, um, being able to, to use volatility to unlock relative value and, and transition portfolios to, to where we want them to be uh, is, is ultimately what drives long-term alpha. So we, uh, we welcome volatility, uh, you know, maybe up to a certain point for our, all of our mental sanity, but ultimately it's, uh, it, it's good for the portfolios. Adam, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. It's been very enlightening. Uh, please come back and visit with us again soon. Thanks so much, Jack. Appreciate it. Thanks, Adam Block. I was very fortunate to catch up with Karthik Narayanan, head of Structured Credit. It was a good discussion. Welcome, Karthik, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Hello, Jay, and thank you for having me on today. Well, let's start with uh, a discussion of mortgages, Karthik. What are you seeing in terms of issuance and spreads? So in the non-government guaranteed market that we typically call the private label or non-agency market, first we saw issuance really take a nosedive in 2020, as was the case in a lot of sectors, but then bounce back pretty strong in 2021. In fact, in 21, we saw over 140 billion of bonds sold into the market, which is a post-financial crisis high. And the expectation is, as the housing market continues to recover and the economy continues to grow, that we'll see issuance in 2022 about 20% higher. In terms of spreads, credit spreads have widened to start the year in non-agency mortgages, really in sympathy with the volatility that we're seeing in broader equity and credit markets. And just, Jay, to give you some context around that, benchmark AAA tranches, which tend to be the largest tranches off of new deals and the ones that investors can most easily track and watch, have widened about 10 to 15 basis points over the year to date. Is that a fairly uh, swift widening uh, in, according to history? It's actually been kind of a slow and controlled widening. And it shows up slowly, both in terms of how quickly or slowly new deals get placed, which is slower than they were last year. Uh, it shows up in secondary trading. And it shows up in the eagerness of dealers to position risk. So. I would call it more of a glide path, incrementally wider, um, and sort of a muted response to the broader volatility and broader risk markets. Thanks. Now, Karthik, this is an inside baseball kind of question, but can you explain the difference to uh, to us about between RMBS 1.0 and 2.0? To put it simply, RMBS 1.0, when People, market participants use that term. They're referring to securitizations of mortgages that were done before the 2008 financial crisis. So these were done in sort of the credit boom of those years with some of the lax underwriting and lax securitization uh, controls that were the norm at that time. Uh, those issues are still around. Those bonds are still around. They look very different than they did then, but they still exist. And it's something like a $200 billion market, which is... Uh, you know, not enormous, but it's still an institutional scale and, and investable market. RMBS 2.0 is actually quite a wide variety of collateral and structure types that were created after the 2008 financial crisis with more modern um, underwriting requirements and securitization and governance requirements. Now, this RMBS 2.0 is far from homogeneous. It includes collateral types ranging from uh, very high credit quality prime jumbo borrowers, loans that qualify for agency, GSE, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac execution, um, investor loans, 
what they call non-qualified or non-QM loans. So these are ones that fall outside of the agency requirements. It also includes re-performing loans. It's a very wide variety in RMBS 2.0. The thing I would impress upon you and to our listeners, RMBS 1.0 tends to be more of a credit sensitive subsector. RMBS 2.0 tends to be more of a call risk or prepayment risk interest rate sensitive subsector. Thanks. Now I'll get back to uh, value uh, and how the market values these two uh, parts of the market a little bit later. But but another driver of, of value is uh, the housing market. Uh, and where are you right now on uh, housing fundamentals? You know, housing fundamentals are indeed constructive. There's been a 10-year shortage of new home construction, uh, you know, since the financial crisis. And at the, over these 10 plus years, household formations have increased, the overall population has increased, and mortgage rates from a historical long-run perspective are, are you know, generally low. Um, now, these factors will not be in place forever. Uh, they will take time to, but they will take time to collaborate. In the meanwhile, home prices will continue to rise, um, maybe not at the same breakneck pace we've seen over the last two years as um, valuations are you know, obviously much higher than they were two years ago, which stretches some of the momentum. Um, but even if home prices continue to hold their value or appreciate at a modest pace, a more modest pace, um, you know, in, in structured finance, you know, bond speak, that will drive credit positive things like higher prepayments and lower default rates. And, and so where, does, where do you fall on uh, your view of credit worthiness of borrowers for mortgages right now in, in the aggregate? There's really two answers to that, Jay, and, and I'll, I'll uh, you know, sort of touch back on your urge, earlier question about the differences between RMBS 1.0 and 2.0. Uh, RMBS 2.0 is less of a credit-sensitive sector. Uh, these are new loans. The loan-to-value ratios are low, meaning borrowers have generally a good amount of home equity and skin in the game. The underwriting standards are modern and, and fairly conservative, uh, you know, compared to certainly compared to before the 2008 financial crisis. So for those loans, the credit environment's constructive, but these loans are pretty conservative to begin with. So the effect may not be that dramatic. In RMBS 1.0, these borrowers are not as strong. They were written to the loosey-goosey standards of the pre-2008 crisis and have uh, sort of aged over time and, and, and seen appreciation through time. And these fundamental housing improvements that I spoke about a moment ago, and my colleague Brian Smedley on the econ uh, economics team has also talked about on one of your more recent podcasts as well, um, those fundamentals are more sensitive in the RMBS 1.0 sector. So those types of loans, loans that we call re-performing loans or non-performing loans, where there's a higher expectation um, of needing to modify the loans to keep them, keep them, keep the borrowers in their homes and to keep the loan performing. That's where these improvements tend to, to make a difference. So those are areas where we expect these credit trends to ultimately lead to more favorable performance. So given uh, the technical backdrop that you described and some of these other fundamental uh, issues like housing and credit, um, where are you finding value in the mortgage market right now? There's a few places that we're focusing on, Jay. First, um, sort of starting with the more credit-sensitive areas, Reperforming loans and the RMBS 1.0 securities, they're in a very unique place where at this point they've gone through two recessions. There's a phenomenon uh, that we see in structured finance with pooled risk assets called burnout. And what that means simply is that when you take a loan pool and expose it to either interest rate shocks or credit shocks, 
every time you do it, the next time it becomes less sensitive because some of the borrowers that are the most affected by that shock leave the pool. And at this point, these reperforming or 1.0 loans have gone through two recessions. And on a go forward basis, we expect them to be pretty stable. And as home prices uh, you know, continue to, to march higher, whether at a fast pace or a modest pace, and interest rates remain low and the economy remains stable and unemployment remains favorable, these loans will continue to improve. So that's one area we, we like is in the 1.0 and reperforming space. Um, away from that and away from more uh, and moving towards pivoting towards less credit sensitive parts of the market, in RMBS 2.0, some of the uh, what we call mezzanine tranches, that would generally be the second, third, and fourth priority tranches, which were typically double A, single A, and triple B rated. Uh, we think these tranches offer some in good incremental spread relative to um, more loss remote triple A's and still themselves remain loss remote under a very wide variety of outcomes. And over time, the credit fundamental improvements that I mentioned before will result in a slow pace of upgrades and, and um, more favorable pricing on those tranches too. So RMBS 2.0 mezzanine, RMBS 1.0 credit sensitive, those are sort of the two places in, in mortgages where we're the most constructive right now. And, and more broadly, we've spent a lot of our time talking about mortgages here, but more broadly, where are you finding value in other parts of the structured credit market? Sure. Since we already talked about RMBS, we can go around the other major food groups. Um, there's value that we see in a number of places. First off, on the corporate side, um, cor collateralized loan obligations or CLOs, the mezzanine tranches off of a broadly syndicated CLOs. So those are CLOs backed by broadly syndicated leveraged loans uh, to non-investment grade, uh, secured loans to non-investment grade corporations. We see those tranches as remaining very risk remote under a wide variety of historical scenarios and prospective future scenarios and still offer a good yield pickup um, both to similarly rated corporate bonds as well as similarly risky corporate bonds. I just draw a distinction there because ratings obviously are not a full arbiter of risk. As investors, we spend a lot of our time thinking about what that actually means. Uh, and second of all, um, this sector should continue to benefit from fundamental improvements in the leveraged loan market um, in terms of default rates and overall availability of credit and liquidity for those borrowers to roll their debt through time. Moving uh, on to commercial real estate and CMBS, the area we are uh, the most focused on is in uh, commercial real estate backed CLOs. So this is ABS type uh, securitization technology applied to a pool of transitional commercial real estate loans. Uh, so these are perhaps multifamily loans on multifamily properties that are, where the property is being renovated. Um, you know, it could be for, um, uh, you know, office properties that are undergoing significant improvements or reconfiguration. And there, these loans, although there's a higher element of business execution risk, there's a lot of skin in the game and a lot of structural protections in the um, actual securitization that we think are very important. And from a that's from a risk standpoint. Now, from a value standpoint, um, compared to other shorter duration risk in the corporate bond market, there's a meaningful yield pickup. And compared to longer duration risk in the CMBS market, there's also a good yield pickup. So this is a sector that we really like. It's complicated. It takes more effort to follow. It's not a giant visible market. 
but we think there's value there. And, and finally, on this commercial real estate CLO point, um, the macro volatility of this year combined with higher supply in this market has put some pressure on pricing too, which we think is uh, creates a degree of an opportunity uh, in that market as well. Then finally, in ABS, this is a very diverse esoteric market, especially when we're talking about um, commercial ABS. And in that market, it's hard to paint with a broad brush. But what I can say is we've seen interesting transactions come along and we expect to continue to see them in 2022, backed by whole business securitizations, uh, data infrastructure, uh, and, and also uh, on a selected basis, aircraft and some of the other transportation assets uh, that come along. So a uh, broad market, very diverse, but continues to be a complexity premium there uh, that remains interesting. So uh, final question, uh, Karthik, as you look at the structured credit market, uh, how are you evaluating the shift in monetary policy that we're seeing as a driver of performance and relative value? So it's a very big question, Jay, and, and uh, it's one that investors are clearly struggling day by day and week by week to um, handicap and to understand. Monetary policy, whether it's the Fed's interest rate response function to um, both employment and, and inflation, or if it's the markets focused on you know, balance sheet runoff, or even the Fed's paradigm for framing a balance sheet runoff is, is very fluid. And, and it really, here at Guggenheim, it feeds more into our portfolio duration positioning and overall credit risk allocation uh, more than it does into individual security selection, which is sort of intentionally by design in our process. Now, having said that, uh, it does flow through in terms of the potential for a recession in the coming years, the potential for a Fed policy mistake sort of over tightening. Um, and, and those possibilities, the, as the probability of those outcomes changes, our overall risk appetite for some of the longer duration credit risk profiles will also change. So it's sort of an indirect, our process is set up for that to be handled more efficiently at the portfolio level than the security selection level. But some of the knock-on effects we're certainly uh, cognizant of and, and vigilant for. Do you think though that there'll be uh, a greater value attached to uh, the floating rate portion of your market as the Fed uh, starts to raise rates? That would be our expectation. So I think in areas like corporate CLOs and commercial real estate CLOs, um, as Fed response functions and rate has become uh, sort of more crystallized and entrenched in the, in the minds of investor investment participants, uh, those sectors historically would see increased interest. So um, I think we are pretty early in the ballgame, but I think as we go on, it would be pretty reasonable to expect a continuing bid for those kinds of floating rate assets um, in this leg of the Fed cycle. Well, Karthik, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Please come back and visit with us soon. Thanks, Jay. My thanks once again to Matt Bush, Adam Block, and Karthik Narayanan. And thanks to all of you who joined us for our new podcast. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, including the CIO Outlook by Scott Miner, our global CIO, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long.
important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results.